The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The New Immuno-Oncology Era in Early-Stage Bladder Cancer, Readying the Modern Urology Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FPT 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Uh, hi, everyone, and welcome to the uh, new immuno-oncology era in the early-stage bladder cancer, uh, readying the modern urology perspective. Uh, I'm Neil Shore. I'm the medical director of Carolina Urologic Research Center and the chief medical officer of urology and surgical oncology for Genesis Care in the U.S. It's a really great pleasure for me to be joined with my good friend and colleague, um, Dr. Matt Galski. Uh, Matt's from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City and the director of genitourinary medical oncology at the Tisch Cancer Institute in New York. Uh, we know the impact of immunotherapy on the treatment of metastatic urothelial cancer. It, it's been well established really since 2016. It's incorporated in the treatment paradigms and virtually all national and international guidelines. But now there's an, an ongoing burgeoning role for immunotherapy in early stage disease. So today we're going to be exploring some of the developments that can inform the use of checkpoint inhibition and to really appreciate the multidisciplinary optimization of that management now for both NMIBC and MIBC. And it's really an integral a part of the evolution of multidisciplinary care, which ultimately provides patients with the best of care. Uh, we'll discuss practical points that should help you in your daily uh, management, diagnosis, and therapeutic selection. So let's begin. So the goals of, our, thera- of our, our session today is understanding immunotherapeutic strategies in bladder cancer and early stage disease. That's what we're really going to focus on. Um, what are the skills that you need within your clinic to do this well and personalize treatment plan and provide also some guidance on how to create a team-based management uh, because there are some unique uh, suite of, of skills and understanding education to manage and teach and educate patients about adverse events associated with immunotherapeutics uh, such as checkpoint inhibitors, and particularly in early-stage bladder cancer patients. So the challenge is in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, well, like a lot of disease states, and if we stick to geo-oncology, we always say how prostate is very heterogeneous. Well, NMIBC is very heterogeneous too, and therefore we need to understand the unique issues regarding selection and management of the different therapeutics. Immunotherapy, one really needs to have a good handle on the immune-related uh, adverse events. Uh, Matt Galski is going to talk more about that, and we'll talk more about its implication for the MDT. Um, now, patients who have high-risk NMIBC, these are the ones we are particularly focused on because they have the highest percentage of progression. Uh, as you see mentioned here, 25%. Bladder cancer, low-risk, intermediate-risk, high-risk, it has the scourge of recurrence. It's the progression that really concerns us for those of the patients who can go on to have disease progress outside the bladder, have metastatic disease, and ultimately have a lethal pathway. Now, intravesical therapies after resection to URBT 
have clearly been shown, certainly with BCG and other intravesical chemotherapies, to reduce recurrence and progression. But there's still an unmet need because we have BCG unresponsive patients. We have the BCG shortage, and we'll talk more about that. Um, And then the issues regarding receiving appropriate um, maintenance schedules. And and the guideline recommendations are there for the the strategy for maintenance based upon a, a pioneering work that was done with the SWOG trial. But nonetheless, Fewer than half of our patients complete adequate maintenance BCG. I mentioned shortages. Ultimately, what are our goals are really to avoid cystectomy or at the very least delay it for as long as it is deemed safely possible. Because radical cystectomy, albeit an important um, surgical intervention, is nonetheless uh, of, of major consequences to patients and their cancer journey. So what about additional therapies that we can use? We'll talk more about that. Here's the IBCG. Uh, They do great work in defining, you know, who are patients who have received adequate BCG or inadequate BCG. And uh, the the indications, as you see listed here for receiving induction, and then ultimately for patients who receive induction, proper maintenance, uh, and then are deemed either unresponsive at the bottom orange uh, versus those who, who have late relapse after getting an, either an adequate or a less than adequate dose of BCG. And this particular last group, the less than adequate, is an ongoing area of key interest. But our trials to date, especially for the BCG unresponsive, are based upon the definitions of a proper induction, five of six, maintenance of two of three, three months out, and continuing that same regimen over typically six months for two to three years. So here's a sort of an overview combining guideline statements from AUA and SUO, US-based here, uh, for, for NMIBC. And you, we do our TURBTs, we get the histopathology, we want to make sure we have good um, interpretation, good resection, um, potentially a repeat resection, but some guidelines, there's level one evidence for it, especially for T1 disease, and arguably if it's a TAG3 and you felt that you didn't do a complete resection. At the bottom, there we have the, uh, the, the trifurcation of risk, low risk, to high risk, intermediate risk, basically everything falling in between the low risk and high risk definitions, the roles for BCG and for maintenance. Now, what's really exciting to me is the fact that we have a lot of other um, avenues within the field for uh, of clinical investigation, the trial landscape, um, looking at you know BCG versus intravesical chemotherapy, GEM-DOSI, Looking at the, the IL-15, or also known as ALT-803, uh, the really pioneering work done by the QUILT trial, which is before the FDA now on this super agonist CR rate of 71%. Uh, other um, um, a mechanism of action of, of therapeutics, such as FGFR inhibitors. This is the Thor phase 2 study. Uh, and again, all of these here are for BCG unresponsive. Adstiladrin, uh, the RAD interferon syn- 
three um, um, uh, natopharagene feridonavec has now been approved by FDA in December. They're, uh, we're expecting a commercial launch of this for BCG unresponsive patients uh, sometime at the end of summer 2023. And this was real kudos to great work done by the SUOCTC. But we're going to talk about immune checkpoint inhibition. So the Kino 57 was pioneering phase, uh, a large phase two study, which ultimately demonstrated in this particular um, cohort for patients with in cohort A, CIS, with or without papillary disease, who were BCG unresponsive. Cohort B, I'm going to show you in a minute. Data recently presented at ASCO GU 2023. And these are open-label patients receiving pembrolizumab, 200 milligrams Q3 weeks, and the rigorous evaluation with cystoscopy, cytology, and imaging, and ultimately looking at uh, disease-free survival, the DFS, uh, at 3, 6, 12, and now out to 24 months. And the basis of this particular cohort, A, you see the Kaplan-Meier here, this led to the uh, uh, FDA approval in January of 2020. It is the only immune checkpoint inhibitor to date approved for BCG unresponsive patients. And so what we see here is about a 40% a CR at three months, extending uh, to a CR of nearly 20% at, at 12 months, and uh, 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 the, the, the duration of response out to 16.2 months. So this has now been on the market, readily available. And of course, this is to obviate the, the moving to cystectomy if it's felt that it's safe to, to do so. Now, cohort B was just presented again at ASCO GU 2023. It'll be again presented at EAU 2023. And this was the type, this cohort B, this is papillary now. Uh, so papillary and also some patients with T1, but no CIS. And there's a breakdown between looking at uh, PDL based upon the, um, uh, the, the CPS uh, assay for greater than 10, less than 10. Uh, but what you see here is that regardless, what one sees uh, a very nice response that these patients at three months, their disease-free survival, 54, 43, 39%. Um, and one sees, interestingly, particularly in those who had were PDL positive, a really uh, um, a marked benefit. But as we go on, we, we th these are still relatively um, small numbers. But I think it's really important that this data has come across, and we'll further be reporting on survival uh, uh, benefits as well. Cohort C. This is looking at combinations for a similar populations in the BCG unresponsive CIS with or without papillary disease, T1, TAG3s, and combining with pembrolizumab, uh, TIGITS and LAG3. And this is an ongoing uh, trial. It's currently enrolling. And I think this is further exciting to, be, uh, to try and see if we can have combinations with the checkpoint inhibitor uh, and uh, vibostalumab, which is the, the TIGIT, and afevazilumab, which is the LAG3. So um, these are additional data that are, are coming forward, and it's a trial in progress. So what about other options? And so I mentioned earlier uh, this notion around a device. We, some folks call it the pretzel, but really because it looks like a pretzel, it's the size of two quarters 
uh, overlapping, and it's an intravesical drug delivery system that allows a sustained release of in the TAR-200 of gemcitabine. And the Sunrise 1 is a, a phase one, a phase 2 study looking at 200 patients, the cohorts combining uh, one cohort of, of, of the, uh, the device with gemcitabine slow release, again, given intravesically, so not systemically, and a, a, an immune checkpoint inhibitor known as cetrilimab, and then a monotherapy arm of TAR-200 and a monotherapy arm of cetrilimab. So a very interesting and unique way of, of approach. In the phase three trial, the, uh, known as by, sponsored by AstraZeneca, I'm honored to be the co-PI with uh, Maria DeSantis. We've completely finished accrual for this trial. This is in BCG naive patients, high risk NMIBC, so high grade T1, CIS. You see this, the um, inclusion here. Um, a three arm randomization, traditional BCD injection, but no maintenance, and dervalumab. Uh, a, a checkpoint inhibitor, a, as well as a second arm of traditional induction maintenance BCG plus uh, dervalumab. And th this was given uh, for uh, uh, a year's time. And then a traditional control arm of BCG induction and maintenance, a primary endpoint uh, of disease-free survival. This will be the first of three important phase three trials to read out. There's the keynote 676 which is an almost identical trial design, but using uh, um, pembrolizumab. And then the CREST trial, which is a subcutaneous uh, a checkpoint inhibitor known as sasanlimab. And uh, th these trials are, are going to arguably, once they have enough events, uh, give us, and if they're positive, offer checkpoint inhibition in BCG-naive patients of course, we'll look to see efficacy and look to see the risk-benefit analysis, particularly by safety profile. So just a, a quick case in here, NMIBC, 68-year-old uh, patient, high-grade disease, laminopropria invasion, um, muscles not involved, repeat TURBT by the guidelines, by level one evidence, no residual tumor. So some of the questions, you know, so what do you do now? Um, what intravesical approaches do you take? Is the patient's BCG naive, BCG unresponsive, particularly, let's assume he's BCG unresponsive here. If there's a shortage, what do you do? And what about, you know, this, how do you deliver immunotherapy? And of course, clinical trials are always uh, a good solution, especially if you're studying some of the things we just talked about. Matt, any quick comments on this case? So I think this is a particularly tough one because this is a patient with a high-grade T1 tumor, uh, and we know that the approval for pembrolizumab thus far is for carcinoma in situ with or without papillary disease. So you showed us the results for papillary-only disease, and we'll wait to see if there's an FDA approval there. Um, of course, cystectomy is a standard of care in a patient like this, but there are intravesical options that are out there and sometimes uh, pursued. Yeah, great. Agree with all of that. So let's kind of switch over now and talk about another area that I think is incredibly interesting, very exciting now for all of us who take care of bladder cancer patients. We talked about, you know, high-risk NMIBC. A lot of trials are going to be coming out in intermediate risk NMIBC, and we talked about the role for IO and other novel mechanisms of action. But 
What about uh, our patients where we know they absolutely do not want to have a cystectomy, or maybe they just don't have a performance or an anesthesia risk for a cystectomy? As many of our patients who have muscle invasive disease, not all, but many, are, are, are deconditioned elderly and oftentimes have a lot of comorbidities and may not be able to, uh, you know, tolerate such a procedure. Um, nonetheless, with better, you know, high volume centers, we're, we are doing much better, but I think it's a, it's still an, it's a, it's a, it's a easier, um, decision, especially for patients who have dysfunctional crippled bladders. So what about the notion of bladder preservation? using a multimodal approach or what some would call trimodal, um, um, aggressive or a maximal TURBT uh, and chemo radiation, and now the possibility, and I'm going to review, adding in other novel forms of mechanism of action, uh, immunotherapy being one of them. So uh, in the, without a trial, chemo radiation and maximal TURBT, and by maximal, really talking about getting down to fat and really being aggressive, trying to debulk the tumor as much as possible and obviously doing it in a way as safely as possible. Um, and so if there's an incomplete response, if the patient receives chemotherapy and radiation, now it's important to bring in your radiation oncology colleague, your medical oncologist. There are several different uh, chemotherapeutic regimens that one can choose from. They are there's a standard amount of agreement on typically four different regimens globally. Sometimes there are some other approved therapies such as vinflunine that are given in, in Europe. But if the patient has an incomplete response, our, arguably could still go on to a completion cystectomy. But if the patient does have a response uh, and manages to uh, continue to have good long-term follow-up, and these are, are some of the, the happiest patients I've seen in my practice. So I, I mentioned the importance of a complete, a very thorough resection. The chemotherapy is given for its sensitizing impact for radiation benefit. Um, and I think for the location of the right lesion, not well suited for someone with prostatic urethral or bladder neck involvement. But certainly for patients in other areas of the bladder, the dome, the base, the lateral walls, um, posterior wall, and some would argue against giving it to certainly for patients who have disease at the level of the ureteral orifices, especially if there's hydronephrotic change. But we need more randomized trials, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. So harnessing immuno-oncologic therapy in a trimodal setting, here's a trial, it's a phase two called the Immunopreserve. It's uh, using a, a checkpoint inhibitor with a CTLA uh, antibody, so dervalumab and tremolimumab with concurrent radiation therapy. An interesting and provocative trial uh, given uh, patients who undergo TUR, uh, neoadjuvant combination, IO therapy, radiation. Uh, and then a measuring for response. And this is an ongoing trial. Uh, but nonetheless, this trial has, has demonstrated so far uh, a, a disease-free survival with an intact bladder of 73%. And uh, given the combination IO regimen, uh, treatment-related adverse uh, events of 31%. And we'll talk more about that and the importance of understanding how to deal with that 
A phase two study, again, looking at trimodal bladder sparing is pembrolizumab and systemic gemcitabine and concurrent hypofractionation. Uh, again, here we have a median follow-up of 14 and a half months um, and a one-year bladder intact disease-free survival rate of 88%, a complete response rate 12 weeks post-RT of nearly 80%. So looking, of course, at any of the systemic toxicity and local avoiding control, but nonetheless, these are patients who are doing very well maintaining their bladders. Here's a phase three trial that I've been honored to be part of. Uh, this is a global trial known as the Keynote 992. And this is looking at patients with muscle invasive disease who want to opt for bladder preservation. They don't want cystectomy. And what we're seeing here is a randomization one-to-one of PEMBRO, Q, the Q6 week regimen uh, and chemo radiation. Again, uh, medical oncology choice on the different chemotherapeutic regimens versus a placebo-controlled um, uh, uh, and a chemo-radiation uh, therapeutic uh, regimen. Um, so I'm very excited about this. There are some additional ongoing randomized trials. You see them listed here at the bottom. Uh, very important because, again, going to cystectomy is an easier call, especially when patients have tremendous voiding symptoms or their bladder cripples, so to speak. Uh, but this is really an unmet need, and, and in, these are important prospective trials for us to get the, the evidence that we want to see. I mentioned the, uh, the, the, the TAR or the TAR-200 platform earlier. Here's the, uh, another bladder-sparing approach, the Phase 3 Sunrise 2. There are four Sunrise trials that are ongoing. In the Sunrise 2, this is the TAR-200 with gemcitabine and uh, the, the PD-1 inhibitor citrilumab versus more the traditional concurrent chemo uh, radiation uh, option in a one-to-one -one randomization. So very provocative study looking at bringing in this intravesical gemcitabine exposure and an IO versus more traditional chemo uh, radiation therapy um, approach. So uh, with that, let me um, hand it over to you, Matt, and let's talk a little bit more about what we, you know, some of the more traditional, but some of the more interesting and provocative work that's coming out on both neoadjuvant and adjuvant strategies in I.O. Thanks, Neil. So lots going on in the non-muscle invasive and, and trimodality therapy setting, uh, integrating immune checkpoint blockade. And so let's move to Another setting in the treatment of muscle invasive bladder cancer, which is the neoadjuvant setting. So we know that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is a standard of care for the treatment of patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer based on two large randomized clinical trials. Uh, and we also know that there's room for improvement here. And one way to improve upon neoadjuvant therapy, of course, is to add additional treatments like immune checkpoint blockade. Uh, in the neoadjuvant setting, we do have the ability to do phase two studies because we have an intermediate endpoint of activity, that's pathological complete response. Uh, we don't have that in the adjuvant setting, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. So historically in the adjuvant setting, we've needed to rely on randomized studies, but in the neoadjuvant setting, we could do phase two studies and get a sense for whether or not we're moving the needle at all. And we have a number of phase two studies now which have explored single agent immune checkpoint blockade or cisplatin-based chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade in the neoadjuvant setting prior to cystectomy, looking at pathological complete response as a primary endpoint. 
The studies with single-agent immune checkpoint blockade, I think, were, were really quite intriguing when we first saw the results. In, in the two studies, which really we saw the results for first, were the Pura-1 study, exploring three cycles of pembrolizumab prior to cystectomy, and the Abacus study, exploring two cycles of dehezolizumab prior to cystectomy. And those studies reported pathological complete response rates of 42% and 31%, respectively. Uh, and, you know, for just two to three doses of single-agent immune checkpoint blockade followed by cystectomy, quite intriguing because that's really competitive with what we've seen with cisplatin-based chemotherapy in the past. And so that led to enthusiasm about trying to combine immune checkpoint blockade with cisplatin-based chemotherapy, saying if we could push those pathological complete response rates up in even higher. So now we have a number of data sets, a number of phase two studies which have sought to do that. And what we see with PATH CR rates is that the PATH CR rates do maybe seem to be a little bit higher, maybe more in the 40 to 50% range compared to the 30 to 40% range. So we're not necessarily seeing additive effects when we combine platinum-based chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade in either the metastatic or the neoadjuvant setting, uh, although there does seem to be some increased depth of responses. And of course, that's where the time to event endpoints like event-free survival and overall survival are going to be important. And for that, we need randomized studies. So we have a number of randomized studies exploring whether or not we should add chemotherapy and immunotherapy together in the neoadjuvant setting, uh, or uh, pr proceed just with neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy, followed by cystectomy. And each of these studies has an adjuvant component as well. Uh, and so we'll start to see the readouts of these very important trials within the next few years. It poised really to change neoadjuvant treatment for the first time since the phase three studies were done decades ago that really put neoadjuvant therapy in the map. We also have this unmet need of neoadjuvant treatment for patients who are quote unquote cisplatin ineligible. Traditionally, we haven't had treatments in the perioperative setting or in the neoadjuvant setting for this uh, unmet need. Um, and uh, a number of phase uh, three studies launched in this setting as well. These studies differ from the studies that I just mentioned in that because cystectomy alone is the standard of care, that's the control arm. And then we have studies exploring neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade followed by cystectomy versus cystectomy alone. Uh, and some studies integrating neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade plus the antibody drug conjugate in Fortimab Vidotin followed by cystectomy based on the response rates with that combination in the metastatic setting, which have been quite intriguing. So one thing that we see with neoadjuvant therapy, of course, is pathological complete response in the primary tumor specimen in a subset of patients. And I just showed you that that can be achieved with spline-based chemotherapy. It can be achieved with immune checkpoint blockade alone. And perhaps when you give the two together, maybe a little bit even higher likelihood of achieving that endpoint. And so that really raises the question coming back to Neil's presentation on trimodality therapy. Well, what about bimodality therapy? Can we achieve cures in muscle invasive bladder cancer by maximal TURBT plus systemic therapy? And do we need local therapy with, chemo with radiation or cystectomy at all? This has been uh, a notion that's been toyed around with for really decades. And uh, and shown here are some results from Dr. Harry Herr, really showing in a single center um, experience that there are a subset of patients who probably are cured with this approach, but there have been multiple barriers to advancing this treatment paradigm, 
including some concerns about the disconnect between clinical staging and pathological staging. And now we have a new generation of clinical trials really putting this on the map again and asking the question, if we're very rigorous about clinical restaging and we really assess clinical restaging as a biomarker to inform risk-adapted, personalized treatment decisions in bladder cancer, can we move this paradigm forward? So this is one of these studies. This is 8 serum GU16257, was updated at ASCO GU2023. And in this study, patients underwent TURBT, patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer who were cisplatin eligible, got four cycles of gemcitabine, cisplatin plus nivolumab, and then underwent clinical restaging. And clinical restaging was defined by cystoscopy, biopsies of any visible tumor or biopsies in a template in the bladder, uh, urine cytology, and imaging of the bladder, particularly MRI unless otherwise contraindicated. 76 patients enrolled on this study. 72 patients made it to clinical restaging. There were some patients who couldn't have the clinical restaging performed. Among the patients with clinical restaging, 33 had no evidence of cancer on those assessments, and that was defined as a clinical complete response. And in patients who achieved a clinical complete response, they had the option to not pursue cystectomy and receive maintenance immune checkpoint blockade, or they could undergo cystectomy. If patients didn't have a clinical complete response, then cystectomy was recommended. So you can see here, 32 of the 33 patients with a clinical complete response opted for no immediate cystectomy and rather for maintenance immune checkpoint blockade. And you can see the swimmer's lane plots outlining the outcomes of those patients. The dark blue lanes indicate that patients have an intact bladder with no evidence of local recurrence. The lighter blue lanes indicate that patients have had a local recurrence followed by cystectomy with the, uh, with the yellow boxes. And then the arrows at the end indicate that patients are still alive. So with rigorous clinical restaging and a uniform definition of clinical complete response and an integrated chemotherapy and immune checkpoint blockade strategy, one can identify patients who fare well um, and who might be able to have their bladders left intact. And here you see on these Kaplan-Meier curves, the metastases-free survival or overall survival of patients based on achieving a clinical complete response or not. Uh, and so this seems to identify a subset of patients who fare well, uh, who might be um, selected for bladder sparing. But of course, we need additional data to validate these findings. So how about the adjuvant setting? We've spoken about neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade. And despite all of the data that I showed you, we don't yet have randomized phase three data results to support routine use of neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade. But we do have phase three studies in the adjuvant setting. And we actually have three phase three studies that were pretty similarly designed. We have Invigor 10, which randomized patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer at high risk for recurrence after surgery to adjuvant atezolizumab versus observation. We have the Checkmate 274 study randomizing patients to nivolumab versus placebo. And we have the Ambassador study randomizing patients to pembrolizumab versus observation. These studies were designed really quite similarly with some nuances, some nuances regarding the randomization to observation versus placebo, some nuances in terms of the primary endpoints, which included disease-free survival in some studies or disease-free survival plus overall survival in other studies. 
the eligibility criteria for these studies was really quite similar. And high risk for recurrence after surgery included patients who had received neoadjuvant therapy but had residual cancer, T2 disease or higher in their surgical specimen, or patients who hadn't received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, had T3 or higher disease in their surgical specimen, and were quote-unquote cisplatin ineligible. Importantly, these really were the first generation of phase three studies in uh, the adjuvant setting to include patients with upper tract urethelial cancer as well. So here you see the primary endpoints of Checkmate 274. This was data updated at ASCO GU 2023. You can see the co-primary endpoints of disease-free survival in the intent-to-treat population, where the hazard ratio was 0.71 in favor of adjuvant nivolumab. And then in the subset of patients with high pd one expression, that was a co-primary endpoint, you see the effect size is enriched in that population with a hazard ratio of 0.52 in favor of adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo. And of course, adjuvant nivolumab was approved by the FDA in this setting uh, based on the results of Checkmate 274. We also saw updated results at ASCO-G from Checkmate 274 in terms of secondary and exploratory endpoints. And the updated ASCO-G was really based on much longer follow-up compared to the initial publication of the Checkmate 274 study. So at the time of the initial publication, the minimum follow-up was 5.9 months, and now we report minimum follow-up of 31.6 months. And you can see across primary, secondary, and exploratory endpoints in the intent-to-treat population, incredibly consistent results with successive follow-up with hazard ratios across those endpoints in the 0.7 range. And in patients with high tumor pd one expression, you see hazard ratios in the 0.5 range across all of those endpoints. Of course, it's important to see the stability of the effects over time, because remember, this is adjuvant treatment and it's fixed at one year. So really what we want to see is the outcome, the benefits of treatment persist long after the treatment is stopped. And indeed, that's what we see. What about uh, safety of adjuvant nivolumab? Of course, Lots of experience with immune checkpoint blockade in the metastatic setting. We even have experience with immune checkpoint blockade, as we've heard from Neil, in the neoadjuvant setting, or uh, rather in the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer setting. How about in the adjuvant setting post-cystectomy? Patients are recovering from surgery, and you can see here that treatment-related uh, uh, adverse events occurred in 18% of patients uh, treated with adjuvant nivolumab grade three or higher. In 7% of patients treated with placebo, you see the specific types of adverse events in the figure, uh, and uh, no new safety signals have emerged with longer follow-up. So the side effect profile is very similar to what we see in the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer setting and in the metastatic setting, but not enhanced in this post-operative setting. Quality of life similarly has been assessed in Checkmate 274. Uh, and importantly, when randomizing patients to an active treatment uh, versus a placebo, really what we want to see in a group of patients who by definition should not have a disease-related burden because there's no evidence, there's no macroscopic evidence of cancer, what we're really looking for is no detriment to quality of life with the addition of an adjuvant treatment. And indeed, that's what you see and with quality of life results uh, summarized here over time in both the intent-to-treat population and the subset of patients with high tumor pd one expression. 
So we spoke about trimodality therapy. We spoke about adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade. But what if patients have received concurrent chemo radiation uh, and had high-risk features on their initial tumor? Should we be giving patients who have received concurrent chemo radiation adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade? This has become a very common strategy for the treatment of stage three lung cancer, where patients also get concurrent chemo radiation and now they receive adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade. And so we don't really know the answer to this question yet in bladder cancer. Uh, Neil presented a series of phase three studies, which are integrating immune checkpoint blockade both into the concurrent chemo radiation portion of treatment and also to the adjuvant portion of treatment. We're beginning to see some pilot data, though, suggesting at least this is a feasible approach. So this is called the NEXT study, and this is a phase two study of adjuvant nivolumab after patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer have received concurrent chemoradiation. What we know from the initial results of this study are that this uh, approach is feasible uh, in that small sample size, but seems to be intriguing in terms of the outcomes here. And so very interesting what we'll see with the concurrent chemoradiation plus IO trials because the contribution of adjuvant therapy to those trials is certainly important as well. We need to personalize decisions in the adjuvant setting as much as possible because by definition, when we administer treatment in the adjuvant setting, we're administering systemic treatment to patients, some of whom have already been cured with surgery. Uh, and of course, if we had the ability to measure which patients have micrometastatic disease, then we could apply adjuvant treatment uh, in a much more precise way. The Invigor 10 study, unlike the Checkmate 274 study, did not show an improvement in disease-free survival or, or overall survival. There's a number of potential reasons for that. Ultimately, why the trials show different results isn't entirely clear. However, the investigators from that study asked the question, well, what if we could determine which patients had microscopic metastatic disease? Would the results have been different? And so they used a molecular residual disease assay. And of course, this involves whole exome sequencing of patients' primary tumors, identifying mutations in that individual's tumor, and then developing a PCR panel to detect those alterations in the plasma. This is a tumor-informed bespoke test, so it needs to be developed for each individual patient. And if there is detection of those alterations in the peripheral blood, then that's uh, known as detectable ctDNA or the presence of molecular residual disease. So incredibly intriguing findings, certainly findings that require validation in our efforts to bring precision medicine to the adjuvant setting. And so there are a number of attempts now to try and validate these findings and establish clinical utility. One of those is the Invigor 11 study. And Invigor 11 is really designed to uh, replicate the results seen in that retrospective analysis of Invigor 10. So enrolling a very similar patient population in patients with detectable ctDNA, randomizing them to atezolizumab versus placebo, with overall survival as a primary endpoint because in the retrospective analysis of Invigor 10, that is the population that benefited the most from adjuvant detezolizumab. Within the U.S. cooperative group system, we've taken slightly a different approach, and this is known as the modern study. And the modern study will ideally be launching within 2023. 
In this study, enrolls patients post-cystectomy, similar patient population to Checkmate 274, and patients undergo Signatera testing after surgery. And if there's detectable ctDNA, then patients are randomized to adjuvant nivolumab standard of care versus adjuvant nivolumab plus a LAG3 inhibitor, trying to escalate treatment in patients with detectable ctDNA. In patients with undetectable ctDNA, patients are being randomized to adjuvant nivolumab versus observation with initiation of nivolumab in individuals who convert from an undetectable to a detectable ctDNA assay during follow-up, and there's a non-inferiority design integrated into that portion of the study. Uh, And so ideally with these studies uh, seeking to prospectively assess the value of ctDNA in informing treatment decisions, we'll move into the next era of adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade in urothelial cancer. Currently, the treatment algorithm is shown as follows. Um, Patients uh, with muscle invasive bladder cancer ideally undergo a multidisciplinary evaluation because if you've heard from, from us today, there's lots of choices and lots of emerging data and lots of, lots of emerging choices in this space. If patients are candidates for radical cystectomy and they want to proceed with radical cystectomy, of course, that is a standard of care. And if patients are eligible for cisplatin, well, cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy is standard. In patients who receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and have residual disease, then adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade is a potential standard of care based on the surgical findings. In patients who are cisplatin ineligible, currently proceeding directly to cystectomy is still standard of care, but based on surgical pathology findings, adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade could be administered. If patients don't want to proceed with radical cystectomy, or if there are medical or surgical contraindications to proceeding with surgery, then of course, concurrent chemoradiation trimodality therapy is an established treatment approach. uh, And we've heard that this requires a multidisciplinary treatment with maximal transurethral resection, involvement of medical oncologists, involvement of radiation oncologists, And of course, for every one of these clinical decisions to be made, there is the option to pursue clinical trials. And there are clinical trials in virtually every one of these spaces right now, given the market activity, the market increase in activity in drug development for bladder cancer over the past several years. Um, So let's talk a little bit about a case. This is a 48-year-old man, excellent health, uh, an athlete who develops hematuria on and off. He attributes this to running frequently, uh, ultimately has a workup, has a cystoscopy, a, ha- uh, a bladder mass is identified. He undergoes a TRBT. He has clinically localized muscle base of bladder cancer. He has good renal function. Um, he has no contraindications to neoadjuvant therapy. So he gets four cycles of gencytobine and cisplatin and undergoes radical cystectomy. And on evaluation of his surgical pathology specimen, there's pathological T3B disease, and he has zero out of 32 lymph nodes involved. Uh, so of course, the question arises, is there anything else that can mitigate the risk of recurrent disease in an individual like this? Uh, and of course, now we have data from Checkmate 274 that in patients who have received neoadjuvant spine-based chemotherapy and have pathological T3 or higher disease in their surgical specimen, uh, there is a, um, 
a role for adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade and certainly would be a reasonable approach for this young, fit patient. Uh, so, so, Neil, let's talk about some approaches uh, for team-based collaboration in management of, uh, of bladder cancer. Of course, this is increasingly becoming um, a disease where multimodality therapy is integrated and the expertise of multiple specialties are needed to optimally manage patients. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely the case. Um, and so, you know, the, we, we continue in all forms of, of, of cancer to talk about the importance of, you know, shared decision making. Um, and so I think we're all doing, regardless of your specialty, medical oncology, radiation oncology, uro-oncology, um, uh, geneticists, pharmacists, the importance of getting the patient and the patient voice uh, to be partic active participants and, and discussing things in such a way that they can make their most informed decision. Uh, so much of your presentation was moving us towards this, the notion regarding precision-based therapy, which it, it really comes across all cancer types. And then ultimately, that's what's going to allow patients to, to make their best decision along with their caregivers. And regardless of the, 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 the result, hopefully it's a positive result, but it's going to, you know, have them being in charge of their decision making. And then there's the, the, the ultimate importance of their own psychologic well-being and their adherence to therapy uh, and confidence in the provider because they were integrally involved in the decision. Uh, there's a spectrum, and many of us have patients who just say, look, just tell me what to do. I don't, you know, you just tell me you're the doctor. But I think more and more, given the, uh, the plethora of, of avenues for knowledge and patient education and advocacy groups, Patients will really want to have a full-throated understanding of all that's listed on that tablet on the right of this slide. You know, what are their medications? What are the pros and cons of interventions, whether they're surgical radiation, chemotherapeutic, chemoradiation combinations, I.O.? How will it affect their quality of life? You know, and it's so the quality of life factor, the prevention of complications, um, the, um, the, 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 prevention of progression, and of course, the uh, prolonging of survival become all the key components. Uh, we've talked about our classic way we think about the MDT uh, with, you know, urologists and oncologists, but now we're, we recognize the importance of radiation oncology, interventional radiologists, getting tissue specimen, understanding that if we're dealing with uh, imaging positivity, is it a second primary or not? Getting t adequate tissue as well as blood-based sampling in order to do uh, MRD or, or, or residual disease assessments, and even the basic next-generation sequencing of bladder cancer tissue, whether it's in the primary organ of the bladder or metastatic, it gives us information about their status in addition to their PD status, and there's controversy regarding the implication of that, but I still think most of us like to understand it, but then also their tumor mutational burden, uh, issues regarding uh, microsatellite instability, FGFR um, uh, incidents. These are all going to give us uh, better tools to inform our patients. So yeah, it's this the entirety of this this team, and of course, it's all of the Healthcare team. It's the physician uh, assistants, whether they're 
nurse practitioners or physician assistants, uh, RNs, MAs, the pharmacist, the complexity of what's out there is exciting because it's giving us more uh, tools in our armamentarium, as we're so fond of saying, but it, it does lead to a certain amount of, of complexity and the requirement to stay on top of all of the change in clinical trials, the therapeutics, the biomarkers, and arguably even imaging. And therefore, you know, having that multidisciplinary team, I think it provides our patients with their, their best opportunity. Um, I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that because certain types of treatments and particularly immune-related adverse events may really require that um, regularly we talk and not feel uncomfortable in engaging our dermatologist, our endocrinologist, uh, a pulmonologist, gastroenterologist to help facilitate optimal care. I think what's particularly compelling to me is I've seen still many of our colleagues Urology in particular, radiation oncology, not yet have developing a certain level of comfort regarding immune-related adverse events, educating patients on the importance of prompt recognition, and then ultimately the management. Uh, what's I always think particularly unfortunate is if there is an avoidance of even having these conversations. And I think we're in most parts of the world, not all, where usually we, where you do have the luxury to have access to these therapeutics and uh, even clinical trials, uh, it's a it's a conversation that has to uh, ensue. So, um, you know, the immune-related adverse events that we see, and I think it was really kind of interesting as you look through the data that you presented, Matt, and I did as well, that these are sort of the 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 most common and actually. You know, dermatologic rash, you know, itching, pruritus, the GI, fortunately, it tends to be low grade, but you can see other aspects besides the, the diarrhea and, and inclusive of hepatitis or transaminitis and hyperamylacemia. Thyroid effects are very common, very common. A lot of hypothyroidism, occasional hyperthyroidism. Fortunately, it seems that the pulmonary pneumonitis effects are nowhere near as common as they, I think that in my, at least in my perspective, they were initially reported. Although, of course, an inflammatory response can occur in virtually every organ system. So from, from head to toe, you know, brain to skin, uh, you know, thyroid, parathyroid, lung, heart. Um, and so, but these are, tend to be the more common organ systems. And I think if there's a, a really proper, good, collegial, communicative um, uh, uh, pathway, then patients can get treated with, with great results. So maybe at this point, like hand it over to you, you know, uh, Matt, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, the timing and grading of adverse events, strategies that have worked for you at Mount Sinai and with you know, your patients, your, uh, your, your, your nursing team, and, and the, the urology referral base. Absolutely. So there is a little bit of variability in the timing of when these various immune-related uh, adverse events are most likely to occur. But I think probably the, the, the more important rule of thumb is that toxicities related to uh, immune checkpoint blockade are unpredictable. And they're unpredictable in terms of what organ system might be affected, and they're unpredictable in terms of the timing. 
So you can see on this slide that skin toxicity tends to occur on the earlier side. Um, renal toxicity, which is not very common, tends to occur on the later uh, end of the spectrum. But really, we see immune-related adverse events infrequently after a single dose of immune checkpoint blockade. And we see immune-related adverse events after someone's been on treatment for a year and a half. Um, but most frequently occurs within the first six months. Um, the the um, optimal approach to managing immune-related adverse events is probably early recognition. And that probably is true for uh, most of the organ systems affected. And there are wonderful uh, resources available in terms of managing immune-related adverse events. There's the ASCO guidelines. There's the SITSE guidelines. These are really uh, nice um, uh, proscriptive uh, recommendations for management of immune-related adverse events. That said, it's important to keep in mind which toxicities one can treat through and which toxicities would not be a good idea to treat through. Even if you don't remember everything about the management of immune-related adverse events, that's useful information to keep in mind because that also helps uh, one remember um, which side effects need to be evaluated much more promptly and when you need patients to come in the next day instead of their next visit. Um, and so that's, of course, where the grading of immune-related adverse comes in, uh, immune-related adverse events come in. Uh, and for grade one side effects, for most organ systems affected, this is something that can be treated through. And of course, these side effects are usually very mild and sometimes intermittent. For grade two immune-related adverse events, this is really when we hold treatment and when we have a low threshold to start corticosteroid treatment. And sometimes, depending on the organ system involved, there can be a brief period of close observation, but oftentimes uh, steroids are required. And for grade two immune-related adverse events, this is a situation where restarting treatment at some time after the immune-related adverse event has resolved and steroids, if they were given, have been tapered off, um, then, uh, then, then it can be considered. For grade three and four immune-related adverse events, generally, stopping treatments required, initiation of corticosteroids is required, and usually we would not recommend restarting uh, treatment in those settings, although it depends, again, a little bit on the particular event and the details of that event. For some toxicities, also important to keep in mind, um, treating through uh, that toxicity can be considered because it's not expected to recover, but it could be managed. So what's an example of that? Well, something like hypothyroidism. Oftentimes, we'll see a little bit of thyroiditis followed by hypothyroidism. And that pattern is pretty reproducible. And for patients who aren't symptomatic during that transition, continuing immune checkpoint blockade and initiating thyroid replacement could be considered. But of course, for many other immune-related adverse events, that really does require um, holding treatment and involving uh, other specialties for input both in terms of the diagnosis and the treatment as well. Um, here you could see in a little bit more detail some of the more common immune-related adverse events in terms of the grading, what constitutes the grading, and what some of the guidelines that I was referring to recommend doing in terms of both the workup and initiation of, of steroids and how much in the way of steroids. Usually when we taper steroids in individuals who have had immune-related adverse events, we do that slowly. 
Um, and that's because as one is tapering steroids, um, these events can recur. Um, and so we want to make sure that the event has resolved and that we can stop steroids. And if the event, as noted, was grade one or grade two, then potentially resume treatment. Uh, so lots to know about immune-related adverse events. It is, it is team, uh, it is a team approach to say the least. We need to involve multiple specialties. Uh, our approach has been to try and involve specialists who have a particular interest in managing these side effects so that they become very familiar with them. Uh, and, um, in, in that it's not individuals, um, seeing, uh, patients with, uh, a side effect that they, they aren't used to, used to managing. Um, because oftentimes, uh, that results in our, our specialists who help to co-manage patients deferring back to, uh, back to the oncologist. And, uh, it's of course important for, um, the optimal management to have specialists who really know, um, in detail how to manage immune-related adverse events re related to the organ system that they treat. Um, Neil, uh, in, in terms of your approach, we talk about involving multiple specialists in the management of immune-related adverse events. And I recognize sometimes that's easier said than done. Even in academic centers, getting appointments with some specialists can take weeks to months. So how do you approach that in your practice? Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's evolved over time. Um, you're right. I think that depending upon where you are, it's sometimes getting a one of our busy colleagues to uh, see a patient. It, sometimes they'll, it just takes, you know, getting, um, on the phone yourself or having that, your, your, your go-to medical specialist on your text, um, um, speed dial, so to speak, which is what I've evolved to. So if I have a patient who I really feel needs to be seen urgently from an endocrine standpoint, uh, or even a dermatologic, which are, are kind of few and far between on the dermatologic, more on endocrine, um, occasionally on the GI side, I just can text my colleagues right away and make sure that the patient is seen, you know, very quickly. I think it cannot be underestimated how pivotal our, our nursing uh, leadership is, both in my clinic and in my research side. I have specific nurses in my research uh, uh, center who are doing IO therapy and specific dedicated nurses within the clinic. They are the ones who really spend the lion's share of the time when the, uh, an IO is being administered, going over with the patient and their caregivers. Here are the things that you need to be thinking about. And if, and if you are concerned, you know, email, text, or call us right away rather than sort of reflexively going to the emergency room as emergency room facilities these days are really overstressed and understaffed. So I think that for the, you know, assuaging the, the anxiety of many of our colleagues who may be listening to this presentation, these, as long as the patient and their, their caregivers are really adequately prepped on what an immune-related adverse event in any organ system in the body could in, involve and they contact us, then we can immediately talk about starting um, high-dose steroids or holding the next therapy or doing other supportive therapies. And in a very, very small percentage of patients, we're asking to get a medical specialist involved right out of the get-go, although that's always something that's good to have uh, within your pathway. So it really is, you know, honestly, it's a team approach. 
Um, it's, it's educating patients that they understand not to be reluctant to give us, you know, to contact us by email, text, or just come to the clinic. Thanks. Those are great points. In, in the point about education and educating patients and caregivers, I, I can't stress enough. And, it, it, and it's not only education at the time that these medicines are started, but it's constant re-education. Of course, patients and family members are taking in all of this critical information at that initial visit, oftentimes really um, adjusting to uh, that need for treatment in general and not hearing a lot of what we're telling them about the side effects of treatment. And so stressing the most common symptoms and signs related to immune-related adverse events such that those can be reported promptly, uh, I can't state uh, enough critical importance. There are great um, um, uh, avenues for patient education, you know, SITSI, um, SUO, uh, ASCO, Beacon, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. These are great. This is such a big advance compared to where we were, say, you know, 25, 30 years ago. The access for patients and, I w- you know, to just to give them that is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'd like to thank you for joining us today. In summary, we've seen evidence that supports immunotherapeutic approaches for treating early-stage bladder cancer uh, and representing possible positive alternatives for for patients moving forward. Um, Each of these approaches uh, comes with multiple considerations that have to be weighed by the treating uh, clinicians and patients and family members, uh, and really is best supported by this team multidisciplinary approach that you've heard us speak about. Um, so thank you, Dr. Shore, for this fruitful discussion. Um, I'd like to remind you to download the practice aids associated with this educational activity as a resource for you, your staff, and your patients. And thanks again. And we hope that you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FPT 860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck & Company Incorporated.